0: morning as you can tell from the title it was hard to get a reader this morning nobody wanted to say that word you know 15 times so if you would please stand uh, to honor the reading of God's word
1: the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with the gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand. Excuse me. was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with golden jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abomination and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, saw
0: her. I marveled greatly. Right, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it shows us. I pray today that it would press on us uh, because it needs to. Uh, based on what we read today, we find ourselves um, in, in Babylon and many of us have given ourselves over uh, to Babylon. And so I pray today that you would convict us Uh, where we need to be convicted. Uh, And then Father, also encourage us and help us to to look to Jesus and to see what he's done for us. Uh, That because of his life, his death, his resurrection, those of us who have trusted in him, we will overcome and we will win uh, this battle that we're in. Uh, And that one day we're destined for uh, a great city, a beautiful city, uh, to be a part of the new Jerusalem with you. Uh, And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're we're, um, again, I apologize in advance if your kids come home and ask you a bunch of questions today. You're welcome. Um, We're in the final chapters. We're on the home stretch. Um, and what we see here now is, is that the scene is going to shift again. So in chapters 12 through 16, it was all about choosing a side. And so we said that over and over again. So like, you're either with the lamb or you're with the dragon, but there's no in between. Right? We, we have to decide who we're going to side with. So one side, the dragon's destined for destruction. The other side is destined for glory. So what's going on in chapters 12 through 16 is that he's trying to wake us up to the reality that the hour is short, that Jesus is pressing in on the world. And, and as we said, it's not like Jesus is just up in heaven watching the football game. He's got Doritos all over his chest, right? And then he's checking the, the clock going, well, I guess it's time to get up and go. I better go get him. That, that's not what's happening right now. He's not in heaven just idly waiting to come back. He's not just sitting around waiting for this certain day he's coming right now as we speak and his coming to the world accounts for all the upheaval that we see so starting right here in chapter 17 we are once again called to make a choice this time the choice is between two cities and both of these cities are going to be likened to women so Babylon the prostitute and Jerusalem the bride they represent two communities Two sets of values, two futures, and the question that John is going to pose to us is where do you belong? Are you seduced by the treasures of this earth? Is your heart set on things here or is your heart set on heavenly treasure? Do you feel at home in the world or do you belong to the city of the Lamb? Towards which city is your discipleship and the discipleship of your family oriented? Is it oriented towards the prostitute or towards the bride? And again, he tells you and I that there is no middle ground. You're either with this city or that city, but you don't get to remain neutral. So look with me, if you will, in Revelation 17. We'll look at verses 1 through uh, 7. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So another angel comes to John, and he says, listen, I want to show you the judgment of this great prostitute that's seated on many waters. Verse 15 is going to tell us that many waters represents many peoples and many nations. So in other words, this woman is holding many people in this world captive with her seductions. Verse 2 tells us she's committed immorality with the kings of the earth that they've become drunk with what she has to offer. She's riding on the back of a beast. We saw this same beast in Revelation chapter 13, verse one. It says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. What you and I said was that this beast represented Satan, right, dragon, Satan manipulated political power. So all nations and rulers who've moved out from underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what this beast represents. This woman's wearing purple. She's wearing scarlet. She has gold, beautiful jewelry, and pearls. In her hands, a golden cup full of abominations and sexual immorality. And then on her forehead is written a name, Babylon, the great mother of all prostitutes and earth's abominations. The mother of of prostitutes just means that she's the mother of all Babylons. So any Babylon that follows this Babylon, she's the mother of all these Babylons. We'll talk about that in a minute. So far in Revelation, what's written on your forehead indicates your allegiance. Remember, you're either taking the mark of the beast that's on your forehead, or you've taken the mark of the lamb, which means that you're sealed, that you've chosen side. This woman shows, her name shows that she's clearly chosen sides with Satan. And her name is Babylon the Great. Now remember, there's nothing said in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament. So let's go back and look. The word Babylon is derived from the word Babel. The story of the Tower of Babel is found in Genesis chapter 11. The story centers around humanity deciding to move out from underneath the rain and the control of God, saying, hey, we can do this without God. We can build our own kingdoms. We don't need God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get all together. We're going to show how awesome we are. We're going to build this giant tower to heaven. And then we're really going to show God how awesome we are. And in Genesis eleven four, we read this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. If you remember your flannel board from back in the day, what happens? God has to literally come down out of heaven. Like he's in heaven and he's going, hey, that's a really cute tower. I can't see it from up here. So let me come down. I'm gonna take a look at what you've built. And then he laughs at it. And then as punishment, he punishes their languages. He makes it to where they cannot find unity apart from him. So, Babel and Babylon are code for humanity seeking to build anything without God. And so, in the Old Testament, several specific cities are referred to as Babylon. Nineveh is referred to as Babylon. Tyre is referred to as Babylon. Ancient Babylon? Well, Babylon. Persia, Greece, Rome. All those are referred to in some way as Babylon in the Old Testament. Any nation that leaves God out of the equation... And seeks to build without him is Babylon. Any nation. Daryl Johnson gives us seven marks of a city or a town or a nation taking on what he calls Babylonness. So listen to this. Number one would be leaving God out of the equation. That would be taking on a babylon taking God out of the equation altogether. How many times do we see that happen in a nation or a town or city is they leave God out of the equation. Then a disaster happens, and all of a sudden God's back in the equation. We just celebrated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. You remember that? I heard stories, this place was packed the night after it happened. Why? Because a disaster happens, all of a sudden we need God. How many times have you been in a small town? Disaster happens, kids die, somebody dies, town rallies around it, all of a sudden, oh, we need God again, but it's always very, very short-lived, and then after that, we just go back to our lives. So one mark of taking on babylon would be just leaving God out of the equation. Two, sensuality. John talks about how she corrupts the earth with her immorality. I mean, are we not there? I mean, our culture's saturated with it, from what's on television to the pornography that's just readily available for anybody and everybody. Three, injustice. In chapter 18, John's going to talk about the selling of slaves, literally selling bodies and souls. And so I want you just to think about in our own society how much of what is built in our society is built on the back of unjust economic practices. I mean, think about 18 months ago. Remember, we heard the word essential and non essential workers, where we begin to label people as, oh, hey, we need you. Ah, we don't need you. Injustice. Number four, worship of products. Babylon finds her identity in what she produces. Babylon finds her identity in what somebody or what a nation, what a town, what a city has. Consuming. Number five, violence. Constantly preparing for war. Choosing to solve conflicts with weapons, or or listen to this, Texans. Thinking that weapons bring security and freedom. Now, don't get mad at me. I ain't knocking on the Second Amendment. I'm all about it. Go get it. Okay, that's fine. I'm just saying you constantly think those things bring you security and freedom, and they do not. Constantly looking for a fight. Now, this could be in the physical sense, or it could just be in the sense of uh, of verbal fighting. Anybody have Twitter? I mean, Seriously. I was in a group text with some coaches today, uh, and, and one of them was talking about all the stuff that, that their boys had to endure, because if you get on the Friday night app, does anybody do that? Well, you really want to have some breakdown, go see the cesspool of humanity. Go get on the chat section and watch a bunch of, you know 60-year-old has beens get on there and bash a bunch of kids. It's awesome. Number six: deception, Counterfeit. You're going to see this in verse eight. All Satan knows how to do is parody or copy what God has already made. Number seven, idolatry. As human beings, we can't help but worship. All of us in this room, we worship. We all worship something. We all worship someone. We become what we worship. So we worship money or material possessions or our kids or busyness. We will become those things. And so all those things mark a nation that has been given over to Babylon. And so this woman that we're seeing here, she's a seductress. And everything that she has to offer, from her clothing to her pearls to the gold cup, it all looks so good. William Hendrickson tells us that Babylon is the world as the center of seduction at any moment in history. So this prostitute that we're reading about, she's promising power She's promising opulence. She's promising comfort. She's promising to give you and I a good life apart from Jesus. And check out what she's saying. She's saying, hey, listen, I know life's hard. I know that you all got your struggles, that everybody goes through something, that it's difficult. But you know what would make your life so much better? Like like this sexual experience would make it better or or this amount of money or or this house or, or this lifestyle. And if you'll just come to me, I'll make you happy. Hey, listen, Jesus can't make you happy. I mean, that guy's got rules and he's restraining and, and he's just gonna suck the life out of you. But me, woo, I can make you happy. And this woman promises comfort. She promises satisfaction. And the sadness is, is that she cannot make good on any of those promises. So you remember way back at the beginning of the summer, we went through the Beatitudes. And what does Jesus start with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. This woman starts with, blessed are the wealthy and powerful. Jesus ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted. This woman ends with, blessed are those who do the persecuting. See what John's doing? Two cities. Which one are you going to live in? Two cities. Which one is your discipleship headed towards? And John wants you and I to know, listen, do not get seduced by this woman because she is good. I mean, she's real good. Even John, at the beginning of this chapter, it says she's, he's carried away in the wilderness. Now, in the Old Testament, the wilderness was always a place of testing, but it's also a place of protection. It's there in the wilderness that God grows his people. In chapter 12, Revelation, what does he do? Figuratively, he shows the church moving to the wilderness to be protected from the beast. And so this chapter opens up, and John's in the wilderness, and the reason is, is that he doesn't want John to be seduced by this woman. I mean, look at verse six. What's John say? John's like, I marveled at her. In other words, John's like, boy, she's fine. Woo. She looks good. And the angel in verse 7, he's like, hey, boy, what are you doing? Hey, 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 eyes up here. What are you, hey, whoa. Don't be looking at her like that. Better turn around. John is even struggling there. And listen, the same thing happens to you and I. We see all that she offers, all that Babylon offers and we're seduced by it. Christianity's hard, isn't it? I mean, we 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 might have to miss out on a few things here and there because we can't participate in them, or we might have to raise our kids a little differently, and we might be open to some ridicule and oh man, boy, we don't don't want that, right? We don't want our little pookies to be made fun of. In Psalm chapter two, Jay read the back end of this, but the first part of Psalm chapter two, verses one through three says this Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist is saying that the nations look at us in rage because they're so thrown off by our way of life that the way that we live as Christians following the true God, it disorients them. So what you need to hear me is this is that if you're a Christian in this room you're never going to be cool enough for the world. You're just not Like there's this thing right now, even in in evangelical circles where we have all these talking heads, all these really smart guys on Twitter and stuff like that, and like their favorite thing right now is like they wanna be cool enough and write the cool enough article and the smart enough article to get in the New York Times or to get in the Atlantic or to try to get that sort of influence because then they think, well, if the New York Times will just publish our stuff, then all of a sudden, well, they're gonna look at us and go, ah, those Christians, they're not so narrow-minded, they're not so bad. You're never going to be cool enough for this world. If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you raise your kids to be followers of Jesus, you will put your kids at odds with this world that they are not going to be cool. And as Christians, we have to get over this idea. But we do not like that, do we? We don't. And so what we do is we allow her to seduce us. We allow her to throw stuff out there, and we just take the bait and we eat it. I've said from the beginning that we could agree to disagree on the timeline of this book and and that the theme is still the same. And and it is. Jesus wins. But I do struggle with this chapter, with those who have a very strict, futurist approach to this chapter, because they go, well, chapter 17 doesn't apply to us. We got vacuumed out of here after chapter three, so we're up in heaven playing our harps, sipping lattes, just watching everything go down. But this does apply to us. I mean, you you can't tell me that this woman representing Babylon doesn't have some of us in her clutches right now. I mean, if you can't read what I just said and go, oh my gosh, our nation is here. And listen, Spearman, our town is here. If you can't see that, then I don't know what to do for you. I mean, if you can't see that we're sick, I don't know what to do for you. And this is what John's trying to do. He's saying, hey, wake up. Wake up to the reality that's really going on around you. Towards which city are you and your family oriented? Are you oriented towards Babylon, the prostitute, or to the holy city, the bride? And in verse 7, the angel comes to John. Look what he says. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? Right? Hey, eyes up here. I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other, has not yet come. And and, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while." As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The water that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, uh, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city. That has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the angel's like, hey, quit marveling, stop staring, let me tell you about this woman. So he says, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Remember, the very best that Satan can do is counterfeit or parody what God has already done. How many times in this book has Jesus been described as the one who was and is and is to come? A bunch. So Satan is just parodying here. The middle term is not refers to his defeat by Christ on the cross. But the beast still lives, and he's bringing chaos and destruction, even though he's about to be defeated. The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, this is very simple. Rome was built on seven mountains. They even had a festival called the Seven Mountain Festival. So the beast, dragon-manipulated political power, carrying this woman, who at the time of the writing is Rome. Rome. Remember, she's the mother of all prostitutes, so this wouldn't be the last Babylon. Babylon has taken its form many other times throughout history. We live in Babylon right here right now. In fact, there's actually this long-standing interpretation dating back to the fourth century, that old Jerusalem was the prostitute. And the reason is, is because she chose to ride on the back of the beast of Roman political power. You remember at Jesus's trial before Pilate? Remember, he's he's standing there, and Pilate brings Jesus out, and he presents him to the crowd, and he's like, hey, behold your king. And in John chapter 19, 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priest answered, Caiaphas says, we have no king but Caesar. And you want to read that and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Caiaphas, what, what about God? Like, like what about Yahweh like I thought you had a king I thought it was Yahweh but in that moment do you know what Caiaphas just did he chose political power over God he chose Roman political power over the true God so the old Jerusalem is done and now a new Jerusalem must come and then he says seven kings five who have fallen and the eighth beast now you're not going to find anybody who agrees on this you won't right? Uh, Some try to find five literal kings, and it's kind of interesting. You can go back through history, and they try to line up five different Roman emperors, or they try to say that there are five future kings or seven future kings who are coming. But the best way, I think, to look at this is to treat the seven kings as a picture of the whole. Remember, seven's the number of completeness, and it's the number of the whole of Roman history. It's the, the completeness of the whole of the history of Babylon in whatever form she takes, the eighth is the beast itself. John says he belongs to the seven in verse 11. This is the beast. The, this means that the beast is behind all seven. He's behind the history of Babylon. So no matter where it is found, you will find the beast. And one day, uh, when all the Babylons have come and gone, this beast will make himself known. The 10 kings, this is not the EU, all right? The European Union. In 1981, boy, everybody got real giddy. You wanna know Why? Because they admitted their 10th member. And it was, woo. Jesus is coming back. We got our 10 kings, Woo. By 2010, the EU had 27 nations, not 10. So that's kind of out the window, right? The, the number's all symbolic. It represents completeness. It represents all the powers of all the nations on earth which have been carried on the back of the beast. And then in verse 14, these nations are gonna make war on the lamb. And check that part, the lamb and his people, but we're going to be victorious. The beast can't win. Jesus wins, and his kingdom um, is established forever, and it fills the earth. Verse 15, the beast and the prostitute, they hold sway over many nations and people. So right now, the prostitute has many nations, many people in her clutch, but then look what happens at verse 16. Let's read it again. Verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So this woman is deriving her authority from the beast, but then the beast turns around and he eats her. Evil always turns on itself. It always implodes in on itself. Evil self-destructs because God has made it that way. So listen, any city, any institution, any individual that draws its authority and strength from anything other than the living God ends up being eaten by that other authority and by that other strength. As one commentator says, the greed that gave them power in time shall destroy their power. The weapons by which they conquer will in time conquer them. What they sowed, they will reap. So let's just look at this in two different ways. I want to work at this first from the perspective of the church. And then I want to just look at it as individuals. So let's start with the church. So, so anytime you, you have a church that decides to compromise with the world. And a church that decides to throw things out in order to make Christianity more palatable. So they come in and they say, hey, you know what? Uh, the place of pastors, I know what the Bible says, it's supposed to be men, but hey, let's put women up there. We're just gonna start ordaining women left and right. We're gonna let them lead the church. Uh, gender, uh, we're gonna throw all that out. Sexuality, we're gonna throw all that out. Uh, let's go, uh, let's make social justice our platform. Uh, let's take God out of the equation. Let's see how woke we can get. Um, anytime they do those sort of things, what they're doing is they're trying to make christianity more palatable aren't they i mean the prostitutes come and said hey you want the world to like you then say these things throw these things out there and then here's what's going to happen your church is going to be full of people everybody's going to come to your church because you've made christianity more likable like you took out all the bad stuff it's going to be wonderful you know what happens when they do that they always fail the beast always turns around and it eats them So from 1975 to 2015, the Episcopal Church experienced a 38% drop in attendance. The Lutheran Church, a 32% drop. And the United Methodist Church, a 29% drop. And we all know what's fixing to happen to the Methodists. They're going to split this year because they decided, hey, let's just make Christianity more palatable. When you side with this woman, you always get eaten. Now, Baptists, don't get up on your high horse. Here we go. We got to do it. We don't get off the hook. In 2020, we saw the largest drop in our numbers in 100 years. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because we decided that we're going to make America great again instead of making Jesus great again. We had men stinking stand in pulpits and push people to Donald Trump or to the nation or to the greatness of American values and they forgot to tell people about Jesus. In 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention let then Vice President Mike Pence stand up and give something pretty much amounted to a campaign speech. That kind of junk ain't got no business in the church, folks. Yeah, we're conservative. Yes, we believe that way. We don't believe that way from the pulpit. And the reason we do it is we wanna ride the back of the beast, man. As one famous Southern Baptist said in 2016, we finally got a seat at the table. Yeah. When you ride the beast, it'll eventually eat you. Now, individual's another story. Because Satan's so tricky, right? It's not like Satan shows up and says, hey, here's all these wonderful things of the world right? There, there's all these things. I want you to just go pursue those things. Go get drunk on those things. Go get fat and happy on those things. Now, here's the thing. If you go do that, though, it's probably going to blow up your marriage. It's probably going to ruin your life. I, I just want to throw that out there. I just want to warn you before you do it. I, I mean, if Satan did that, there's not one of us in here going, I ain't taking that deal. I mean, it's not what he does. He doesn't do that. Instead, he comes to you and he gets you by offering you comfort. He comes and he gets to you by offering you pleasure and success and an ease of life, and if you take the bait, that thing will turn around and it'll devour you. So he goes, hey listen, if you just do this, you'll finally have enough money to feel safe. And it's a stinking lie. Even if you had more, you still wouldn't feel safe. You just want more. I know that, okay? I'm in the same boat. I've said things like this recently. Boy, if I just had a little bit more money in the savings account, whoo! just a little bit more, I'd be okay. You'll never feel safe and that thing will eventually eat you at the cost of your family, at the cost of your time, at the cost of your church attendance, whatever it is. Sex is another one, isn't it? Good grief, we've elevated this thing to an unhealthy level in our society. We've taken something good that God's created and we've taken God out of the equation and it's just made it about a body instead of a soul. And what's happening is that people are pursuing this at the cost of their homes and at the cost of their souls and everybody look at me, this stuff has rotted our kids' minds and we are going to need a move of God to save this generation. And a lot of it's on us. Because what? We don't want them to be uncool. So we go, hey, little third grade boy, come here. Hey, let me give you a phone. Yeah, go ahead. Take that smartphone, son. He comes to you and he says, hey, listen, you need a bigger home. You need a nicer car. And he throws it out there. But then the minute you get that thing, you can't be happy. Why? Well, because somebody else just got a bigger home than me. (laughs) I got a nicer car than I did. He gets us by getting us to worship our kids, to make them and their needs the center of our lives. And so we program our lives around our kids at the detriment of our marriages. We get them involved in all sorts of activities. And then we blame the church because, oh, we're just so busy. The church has me so busy one night a week. We make church optional. Then they get to high school or college and we're like, I I don't know what happened. I don't get it. It's what the enemy does all the time. He throws bait out and he hooks us. And John tells us that Babylon, in whatever form it takes, will always fall because God has seen to it that it will. That that thing will turn around and eat you. Catch what he says in verse 17. Look what it says. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast and to the words of God are fulfilled. Sam Storm says that God willed in one sense to influence the hearts of the people so that they would do what is against God's will in another sense. So although Satan is doing his best to destroy the people of God, Jesus is ultimately going to win the day. He's defeated. So what's left for us now is we have to choose a city. What city will you be in? Will you be with the prostitute Babylon, or are you going to be a part of God's city, the bride, the new Jerusalem? In chapter 18, verse 4, we're going to read these words, and we'll look at it next week in depth. But John says this, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. John's telling us that although we live in this world, we can live in such a way that we don't take part in the sins of this world. In in Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 9, if you you can turn there if you want, if not, it'll be on the screen. When God's people are in exile in in ancient Babylon, real Babylon, right? The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Listen to what he tells Jeremiah. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what King uh, Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Eliash, the son of Shaphan and, uh, yep, Jeremiah, whatever his name is, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse five, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So God doesn't say, hey, seek to leave the city you're in. But what's he say? Seek the welfare of the city that I've put you in. So get married, have kids, plant gardens, seek the good of the place that I've planted in you. Folks, nothing has changed at all. We're in this world, right? And we're here until Jesus comes back. But just because we're in this world, it doesn't mean that we have to be taken captive by this world. It doesn't mean that we have to follow the prostitute. Instead, it means that we can follow Jesus. It means that we can have marriages that glorify God and point others to the goodness of the gospel. It means that we can raise our kids to know and love Jesus and everybody look at me, not good moral kids that say, sir yeah, sure, no, sure, and do all the right things. We got enough of that trash in this town. But kids who love Jesus and desire to serve and follow Jesus. We can do that. Matt Chandler says we can come to the point where we say, you know what? I have a big enough house or a nice enough car. I don't need anything else. And take the money we have by staying put, and we can invest it and plant it in the kingdom. We can do it by loving our church and making it a priority, right? Not the thing that we go to only when we have something better going on. Right, I mean, if there's something, you know, you know if there's nothing better going on, we'll go to church. I mean, if there's not too many junior high kids, I'll send my kids to, to youth tonight. I love you enough to say that. Listen to me, we do all of this because Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. Died and rose again, and he is coming back. And he is bringing a city with him, and we are looking forward to that city. So, today, what I would say is that some of you need Jesus. The world is offering you all sorts of stuff, and let me ask you, how's it working? I heard a guy say the other day, he said, Man, I tried everything but the one thing that I needed to try, and you know what? That's the thing that's working. Absolutely. So today, would you trust in the one thing that won't fail? Would you put your trust in Jesus? And then listen, Christians, all of us in this room, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we all need to repent. Every one of us have areas of our lives where we've taken the bait, where she's throwing stuff out there and we're going, oh man, what's being offered is so good. It's so wonderful. And listen, it may be for a short time, but that thing will turn around and it will eat you. It will devour you, and so what I'm asking you to do is maybe turn from that thing before it's too late. So here in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing, and maybe, we had not done this in a while, maybe some of you need to come down here just as a way to say, hey, I just need to bow the knee and say, hey Jesus, I got some things to lay down, and you need to do it. Maybe you just need to do that right where you're at, but I know, even as your pastor, I said it earlier, I get caught in all the time going, man, if I had just a little bit more, if we just had a little bit more, we'd be able to survive and boy, it's just a trap, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Father, thank you for the warning that you give us in your word. That, Father, the, 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 the prostitute, Babylon, she's alluring, and there's so much she, she has to offer, and if we're not careful, we'll take the bait. And when we do, that thing will turn around and it will devour us. And so today, I pray that, that the words of, uh, of Revelation 17 would just be a wake-up call to all of us. That we would see those areas where we've bought the lie and we would repent and we would turn back to you. That we would orient our lives and the discipleship of our lives and the discipleship of our family back towards the new Jerusalem, back towards Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray today. That, that, that they would put their faith and trust in you, that they would realize that they can pursue all these things of the world, but at the end of the day, those things will leave them broken and empty and that only you can satisfy and only you can fill them. Thank you, Jesus, again, for your word. Thank you for the warning that it gives us. I pray that we'd be a church and a people that long for the new Jerusalem and that we would side with the bride, that we would be on that side of what's coming, and it's in your name we pray, amen.